is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden had some scary words about the prospect of nuclear war. The president telling people at a fundraiser the risk of nuclear Armageddon is at the highest level since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. The president saying Vladimir Putin is not joking when he talks about the use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons. We'll go in depth into how big of a threat this really is. The KNX News L.A. mayor's debate, it's over, but we look into which candidate came out looking stronger. And the FBI may have a big misconduct problem after records show several hundred employees left the bureau because of misconduct investigations. We could be turning the corner when it comes to monkeypox. We'll look at what's been uh, working to slow the spread. Is the great resignation coming to an end? Workers are now worried finding a new job not as easy as it was just a short time ago. Doctors getting even more concerned about type 2 diabetes in the U.S. More and more people have it. And mosquitoes flying around annoying everybody. The recent heat and humidity is helping them to thrive. You know, I got attacked the other night by mm. them. Yeah, they're 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 annoying. No, they're they're well. No, I mean they're just a few, but they were annoying. We have the ankle biters now. Yeah, and I don't care about the environment. I want them dead. (laughs) I want those mosquitoes dead. Whatever we have to do, Uh, we start though with the. uh, They were annoying. How's this for a transition? Whatever we have to do. Now let's talk about (laughs) nuclear war. Well, if it takes care of the mosquitoes. Oh my gosh. Uh, We start though with a very serious threat. At least the president thinks so of nuclear war. Shannon Bugas is a senior policy analyst with the Arms Control Association. Shannon, thanks for being with us. I I noticed today that the uh, White House seems to be kind of walking back the president's remarks about uh, how we may be on the on the cusp of an Armageddon, uh, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Do you think he was sort of right on target or do you think he kind of went a little bit too far ahead? Good afternoon, and thanks for having me on and for such an interesting transition. I don't think I've ever had mosquitoes <laughs> turn into nuclear weapons talk before. That's a new one. It's a first. <laughs> yeah, it really is. But I would say first and foremost, I definitely do want to emphasize that President Biden and his statements have been echoed by the Defense Department and officials from the National Security Council that we are, the United States is taking Putin's threat of nuclear weapons use very seriously. At the same time, since the beginning of the conflict, the Pentagon has been monitoring Russia's nuclear forces to see if there's any signaling of an imminent use of nuclear weapons. And so it is a tougher calculation when we bring in the the possibility of tactical nuclear weapons, which are generally thought of to be like lower yield, even though I would say they're still pretty high yield. Um, It can sometimes be a little bit tougher to detect that, but it's not necessarily impossible. And so it's good that the Pentagon is monitoring it. And they've said that there's no there's been no indication yet that they need to change U.S. nuclear posture. And so that is a very good sign. So it's kind of like these this two 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 halves. Right. On yeah. part of it is take it seriously. And the other hand is, well, they're. The threat is not enough for the DOD right now to make any massive changes. Right, because that's when we'll really know if something's going on, when our stance changes in, in results to whatever is happening over there. So that's that's probably the, the thing to pick out. But I'm glad you mentioned that the tactical nukes and, and the yield, because I think people talk about them, right? Like, oh, if it uses one, it's it's tactical, which seems kind of small. It takes out this little area over here. But, but at a quote-unquote tactical nuke now is what? Many times what, what a Hiroshima or Nagasaki was back then? 
Yeah, you've got it. So the bombs that the U.S. used in 1945 were thought of as tactical nuclear weapons, and they ranged from eight to about 15 kilotons. And today, the definition of tactical and not are also known as non-strategic nuclear weapons, it's pretty wide ranging. There's no set yield, but you can see them anywhere from the below 10 kilotons to upwards of 100. And so that is a very big difference when you think about it in terms of their destructive yield. Do you think that the the real problem, though, might not be with Vladimir Putin? Everybody keeps thinking, well, what is he thinking? Is he being rational about this? But what's also apparently happening in Moscow is that there are a lot of really hardliners, right, uh, in the military who are far more hardline, apparently, than than Putin is. So is there uh, is the real danger that they may end up overriding perhaps his better instincts and go more for the trigger? So I would say first that I always hesitate to try and put myself in the mindset of what's, what's happening in Moscow right now, especially with President Putin. But at the end of the day, Putin does have the authority to launch nuclear weapons. And as we've seen over the course of, this, of Russia's illegal war in Ukraine, is that he is making a lot of these decisions himself and he is in a state of isolation. And so the more he is getting of feedback from the hardliners, I would say that's right. That's not helpful to say the least. And so it's something certainly to be concerned about and watch um, in the next coming coming weeks or months. But what I just will keep coming back to and kind of put my little bit of hope into, right, is the assessment coming out of the Pentagon, who is keeping track of everything that's happening in Moscow, saying that there is no reason for us to respond right now. And NATO has also made similar assessments. Shannon Bugis, Senior Policy Analyst, the Arms Control Association. Right now, though, maybe you heard the L.A. mayor's debate yesterday live right here on KNX. We asked some tough questions to Karen Bass and Rick Caruso. They answered, mostly. But did they answer in a way that made one of them stand out from the other? Are more undecided voters now swayed? Matt Lasenye is a political science professor at Cal State Long Beach. Matt, thanks for being with us. Um... I presume you heard and or saw uh, the debate last night. Who do you think was a and everyone always asks this question, who won? And maybe that's kind of a a silly question, but that is the way I think. I'll do it. Yeah. (laughs) Who won? (laughs) Yeah. But but that's what people want to know. Right. Who won? So who won? Uh, Sure. Well, thanks for having me back. Uh, I would say. Oof, I mean, it's a tough call. Uh, I'll, I'll take this. I'll parse it out and say it depends on how you consume the debate. I thought that visually, I thought Karen Bass did well um, making eye contact with the voter or with the with the camera, uh, where Caruso seemed to be looking around more and not necessarily at the audience. Uh, but then in terms of making their pitch, I actually thought they both did a great job of doing what the, is going to be their bread and butter in this campaign. That is Karen Bass talking about her more technocratic experience and Rick Caruso describing a vision that isn't backed by a ton of government experience. So I don't have a hard and fast. I mean, if you had to look at the horse race, it looks like Rick Caruso was closing fast. And yesterday, he wasn't knocked off of that pace. In terms of what we think we know of the polling, though, it it seems like he has been gaining lately. But that's when you look at everybody overall. Does last night maybe change anything when it comes to the the actual thing that people look at, which is likely voters? If the likely voters are going to come out for Bass, then she's always going to be in a pretty good position. Yeah, and the likely voter, according to the last polling, 
suggests that that is going to be a more liberal uh, voter. And Karen Bass is leading with that group really across demographics. Um, and the the real question for the race and for Rick Caruso is if he can turn out pretty much disaffected conservatives, right, who have little to to rally around this election. We always look at the top of the ballot and at the top of the ballot, this election is Gavin Newsom, who, you know, doesn't even look like he's in campaign mode. He is on absolute cruise control. Uh, and so a lot of conservative voters are saying, what, why, why am I coming out to vote? And uh, the, the real question is if Rick Caruso can mobilize those voters and, and convince them that this is important, uh, you know, down ballot race. Did any, any of the candidates last night say something or maybe didn't say something that, in your view, perhaps complicated matters for them? Uh, that's a good question. I would say, first off, the uh, debate had some really good questions and follow-ups. And so my response here goes to one of those first um, colloquies, if you will. Uh, there was a question about what the mayor is allowed to do or permitted to do. And again, when we talk about their skill sets or what their resume has prepared them for, Rick Caruso came out talking about his vision. But that wasn't a direct response to the the difficulties of managing a vast bureaucracy. And so there was a follow up question on that, like, you know, can we dig a little deeper beyond the vision of what you'll do? And I would say that was emblematic of a theme that came up throughout the debate, whether it was concrete uh, results from previous um, attempts to alleviate homelessness or that question on, you know, really, what's the scope of the office? Um, you know, Rick had answers, but they didn't really address the complexities of government, you know, so let's shift to the voter. How many voters know the fine grained details of how the LAPD is managed or the budget overruns or what the recent history of incumbents is? Um, that remains to be seen. So uh, while that might have been a fumble, I'm not sure that it, you know, was devastating. Um in terms of how Bass performed with that same set of voters, I, I would say this was a, a very steady performance. And, you know, if that's the biggest foible I'd point to for Rick Caruso's performance, I, I didn't think that was topped uh, by any drops by Bass. Matt Lasenye, political science professor, Cal State Long Beach. Coming up, is the great resignation over? More workers are concerned now about layoffs and finding new jobs and mosquitoes. Those irritating, annoying, pesky, just obnoxious little creatures. Got any more? Yeah, <laughs> I can keep going on. The recent heat and humidity is helping them thrive. Great. Right here in Southern California. Right now, an Associated Press story in 2020 revealed sexual misconduct allegations among senior officials in the FBI. Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley followed up, and now there's internal records from a whistleblower alleging 665 FBI employees retired or resigned following misconduct investigations to avoid receiving final disciplinary letters. With us now is Carrie Pickett, senior congressional reporter for The Washington Times. Carrie, thanks for being here. So that's, that's a lot of people who got out of the job after being accused of misconduct or, or harassment uh, seems like what just in the nick of time for them. That's right. And that's at least 665. That's what we know of. We're talking about, you know, Senator Chuck Grassley of a 
Republican of, uh, of Iowa. He is a ranking member of the Judiciary Committee in the upper chamber. Uh, he is a champion of, uh, of a whistleblower. He's, a, he's known as a, as a whistleblower advocate on Capitol Hill. He has been looking into this uh, type of thing for a very long time. And uh, according to, uh, to his report here, he talks about hundreds of FBI employees who have been under investigation for sexual misconduct. They have quit their jobs. Uh, before facing discipline uh, from about 2004 to 2020. Now, when we talk about FBI employees, we're not talking about, uh, say, like the rank and file, otherwise known as, you know, GS-12s or, or like, a, like a GS-13s. We're talking about what's known as the, the, the senior executives. These are like the uh, higher-ranking guys. And so, and, and, a, and the big problem here is that any time, like, the senior executives get in trouble, over at the FBI, the Senior Executive Service, they tend to get off a lot easier than the guys who are the GS-12s, the GS-13s, perhaps like the line agents or like the brick agents sometimes of what they're called. So what ends up happening is if they end up uh, get, getting accused of, say, sexual assault or sexual harassment or sexual misconduct of any kind, uh, what ends up happening is they end up getting maybe demoted, maybe even promoted, or perhaps maybe transferred somewhere else, ends up getting sweeped under the rug. So according here to uh, Chuck Grassley, he ended up getting a hold, a hold of a document that was produced by the Justice Department's Office of Disciplinary Appeals, and it was titled Retirement Resignations During an Unwelcome Sexual Conduct um, Adjudications. And it found that from 2004 to, uh, to, to, to uh, 2020 or in December, quote, 665 FBI employees, including 45 uh, senior executive service level employees, have retired or resigned following an FBI um, Justice Department Office of, of Inspector General investigation into alleged misconduct. Right. Carrie, let, let, me, let, me, let me ask you, though, something, because you mentioned earlier on in passing you referred to high-ranking guys. Are there any women involved in terms of those who resigned because of uh, misconduct investigations, or is it all guys? Um, we don't know about the gender um, as far as breakdown, uh, but we... But right now, we only know about the rankings um, in terms of uh, in terms of those who have either re- resigned or retired. Now, you can say, well, hey, you know, at least they got kicked out. Well, yes, but keep in mind, uh, usually when that happens, you know, let's say to someone of, say, a lower status, like a GS-12 or a GS-13, like I just mentioned, they have what's called an SF-50. That's kind of like... Uh, you're like goodbye papers, and it will say, well, this person was a you know under investigation, but uh, someone who is of a higher status, like an, like an SES, like I just uh, mentioned, uh, that may not necessarily be in their SS50. But if you are of a lower status, like a uh, like a rank and file type, that may very well be in your SS50. So, or and perhaps if you're of a higher status, you may actually get a bonus. So it's it's a, it's a difference between being of a executive level in the FBI and being a, of a rank and file status. Yeah, Carrie Pickett there, senior, senior congressional uh, reporter for the Washington Times. Carrie, thank you. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Are we seeing the end of monkeypox, at least in California? There's been a decrease in cases across the state. Officials here in L.A. say vaccination efforts and uh, changing behavior are the big reasons for that. And another reason is growing natural immunity. Dr. Peter Chin Hung is back with us. He's an infectious disease specialist at UC San Francisco. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. So are, are we 
succeeding in doing to monkeypox what we didn't succeed in doing with the coronavirus? Are we actually containing it? Well, we're definitely controlling it, uh, Charles. I think that um, we shouldn't rest on our laurels. It's something like, you know, they always say that in COVID, we're in a, we're in a marathon. It's similar for, to mpox because even though we have the vaccines, we have therapeutics in the U.S., the rest of the world doesn't. Uh, and even though we have 40% of the world's cases, that leaves 60% of uh, virus being spread in other parts of the world. And with travel, uh, it only takes a trip from somewhere else to come back to the U.S. and fuel another surge. And what about even here when you start to break out, you know, different areas, maybe San Francisco and L.A. are covered. But does that also, uh, you know, go for everywhere else and maybe not in big cities? Exactly. Uh, I think, Mike, that most of the decline in the U.S., uh, 95% in California from August to now, uh, is really because of the mega uh, epicenters that have had uh, big declines So New York City, L.A., and San Francisco. But that leaves a lot of rural areas. It leaves a lot of uh, communities of color that probably wouldn't register on the big national dashboards. And what about the situation with vaccination? Of course, early on, there weren't uh, enough, wasn't enough. Uh, and so they changed, as you know, the methodology on how to distribute it. And people were getting, in some cases, just one instead of two doses. Uh, has that is that changing as more vaccine is becoming available? Is more vaccine becoming available? Yes, we have a lot of vaccine now. And um, I think public health authorities are making outreach into fairs like Folsom and Castor Street fairs and other pride events, pop-up shops. But again, you're not getting uh, all the communities at risk, for example, because to line up in a line publicly, you're essentially saying at this point that you're part of the queer community and many people may not be ready to make that public declaration. If this is going to stay around, you know, potentially forever, always be something that's that's circulating. Are those vaccines going to last that long? Is this you get your two and then you're you're good forever? Well, um, there are several things that we don't know about this outbreak yet. Um, I think that it does give you a lot of protection against disseminated diseases similar to the COVID vaccines. You know, it may not be 100 percent um protective against localized, very mild disease, because if you get a high enough amount of virus being um, transferred, uh, you may not prevent that local infection, but it certainly will prevent the vast amount of, you know, disseminated disease to other parts of the body. But, you know, I think in most cases, we're hoping that two shots do the trick. Some people think we may end up at a magical number of three, just like many vaccines that we have, but it's kind of too early to call. And we're studying whether or not a lower dose, uh, one-tenth instead of one-fifth, might even be uh, uh, effective. And if that happens, we can really help vaccinate the rest of the world. Would it be a good strategy? You were mentioning perhaps some people concerned with with, uh, a stigma if they line up to, to get vaccinated for this. Would it be then better since it appears to be now easy to get or easier to get and uh, apparently a fairly safe, I presume, vaccine? Perhaps everyone should get it, no? Well, you know, that's a great question, Charles. I think the CDC in their last recommendations did open it up to people who consider themselves at risk. So it's a little bit more um, forgiving in terms of criteria. 
and that might make it less stigmatizing for folks. For example, you can be uh, have declare occupational risk to get the vaccine. For example, healthcare workers. Um, but again, you know, it is tough. It's a tough situation to really make those inroads. It requires a lot of dedicated effort. And I'm on the California Monkeypox or MPOX Scientific Advisory Board, and our next sort of uh, topic is going to be um, having behavioral scientists come and help us figure out how to reach these communities at risk. We mentioned some changing behavior before. I mean, maybe that lasted for a few months, but but that's not going to last forever either. Yes, it's definitely not going to last forever. And we've learned that from COVID. We've learned that from HIV. Um, people only let up for a while. Then when the weather looks good, you kind of come out uh, and go back. And so I think it's important to continue to uh, do surveillance um, to really try to promote some of these other interventions. And the other aspect is, you know, we're kind of in a low season for a lot of pride events too. Sure, we had some uh, street fairs recently in California, but uh, all of the pride events typically happen at the time when MPOX first came on board, June, July. So again, uh, waiting to see what happens uh, next year and next Pride season uh, would be really important. Uh, but let me, before we, uh, we run out of time, let me quickly go back to what I was asking before. Why not then just give the vaccine to everybody? Well, I think there's still not enough if you open up the floodgates, but I think the CDC may be in that situation with not a lot of demand and increasing supply because we're still ordering more from that company in Denmark where they would open it up uh, to more individuals. I think the next group that people are talking about include college students, um, people who are still uh, experimenting with sexuality. They live in close quarters. And that's an example of a group that a lot of people are looking at right now. Dr. Peter Chin Hong is an infectious disease specialist at UC San Francisco. The latest unemployment report, it's out. Hiring slowed down last month, but the country still added 263,000 jobs. The unemployment rate fell to 3.5%, matching a half-century low. Workers getting kind of nervous, though. It hasn't been as easy to quit and quickly get a new job. There's a worry about more and more layoffs coming up with hiring slowing down. Paul McDonald, Senior Executive Director for Talent Solutions at the business consulting firm Robert Half. Paul, thanks for being here. So, uh, yeah, are we seeing some changes from what everybody termed that great resignation where a whole bunch of people were quitting because they knew they were going to land somewhere like, I don't know, next week? <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Well, there's still many jobs available. There's 10 million jobs um, available in the month of August, uh, according to the JOLT report. Job openings are down. Uh, that's down about a million jobs from the previous month. And our salary um, guide is showing the research that um, companies are still in the hiring mode. So there are some headwinds. You know, things are uh, unemployment's down. That's, a, that's a, actually a, a, a tailwind. But the headwind is the job openings are coming down and individuals are getting just slightly nervous. You know, they, they hear the media, they read the media, there's layoffs. Uh, but this is one of the normal things that happen for those that have been around for a bit in business. Unfortunately, um, there's some worry and it's starting to show itself in what we're hearing from the actual job seekers. Well, and is it to your point, is it mostly younger job seekers who are not experienced in the sort of ups and downs of the employment uh, market that, you know, they got maybe a bit too cocky? They thought, oh, we're in the driver's seat. We can get a job anytime we want and we can demand more money anytime we want. And now they're finding out that that's nah, not always the case. 
I think you, you just said it very well. And I mean, I, I have a, a small focus group of um, late 20s and early 30 individuals. So let's call them, you know, Gen Z. And this, they're in their first professional jobs. This is the first time they've seen a downturn in their professional career. They may have gone through the financial crisis at home. They may have seen, you know, individuals um, tough it out back when they were very uh, much younger. But now they're being impacted themselves. Inflation's high. The cost of gas is high. Goods and services are high. um, And they've only known a really good job market. But I might say, I want to counter that, though. There's still a lot of job opportunity out there right now. And that's where, you know, we have to balance that up. But there's worry. It's just a little tougher to find a job. Might take three interviews instead of one uh, if you're moving uh, to a new employer. Curious because uh, you were talking about the Gen Zers there. Do the millennials have have any different of a view? Because they they would remember a little bit more. They're a little bit older, thirties and forty ish now. So some of them may be thinking, you know what? If I'm going to make jumps, I need to do it soon because I've only got so many years working years left. I um, well, some of them have a, a more experience. Yeah. So therefore, yes, they they've seen the downturn. They went through, you know. 2008, 2009, 2010, and they saw um, some, you know, they had to tough it out. They saw their families tough it out. But at the same time, they have more experience and they um, they feel a slightly more confident in themselves because they have that experience. They've been upskilled or upskilling themselves. They have a little more um, wisdom when it comes to the professional job market on how to navigate through this. So your your company does business consulting. How is this changing landscape affecting what you tell your clients? Well, it, it's interesting. We have constant dialogue with our clients and the clients are coming to us and saying, you know, how do we navigate through this? Say, well, you know, I'll go back to the, the one thing is one, treat your current employees really well because they're the ones that you want to retain. Those are the ones you want to um, upskill. It's still, let's not forget, 3.5% unemployment. And then if you go into certain sectors where it's 2% or lower, it's really important to maintain the attitude of how am I going to retain those individuals? How am I going to upskill those as we pivot towards full productivity uh, with um, individuals, meaning when they weren't on site, and there might have been some lax management style during the downturn, or I want to say during the pandemic, um, then how are we going to get and maximize the productivity from each one of these employees? Those are the discussions we're having right now, and and, and how to um, bring in project teams in order to meet the, the ebbs and the flows in their business model and in the, in the uh, production of, uh, you know, if they're in the production field, manufacturing field, and so forth. I'm curious if people are really going to try and make a move to like, okay, can we get on the uh, three days at home, two days there, two days at home, three days? Do you have to like decide on that relatively soon before, you know, we're in a whole different picture down the road? It's interesting to see as we have consultative um, uh, discussions with our clients, there there's not one size fits all here. Some small businesses need people in the office all the time for certain skill sets and functional areas. Larger businesses, they're starting to, you know, it depends on the industry. They're bringing people back. Others are saying, no problem. You're, you're highly productive. We have the technology to support you in a remote setting. Hybrid is, is, is an interesting um, case study right now. 
It builds culture because you still have connectivity in person. And we're finding that people do like the connectivity human to human in, in person, not just on Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams. So we're finding that this middle ground of hybrid is meeting the needs of many, meeting the employer as well as the employee needs. Paul McDonald there, Senior Executive Director for Talent Solutions, the business consulting firm. Robert Half. Paul, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Type 2 diabetes is a problem that is massively growing here in the U.S., and that has a lot of doctors worried. The latest numbers show one in seven American adults has type 2 diabetes now. That's up from one in 20 back in the 1970s. 40% of young adults will be diagnosed with it at some point in their lives. Some doctors say medical care, simply not enough anymore. Dr. Betu Hatsipolu is a professor of medicine at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine there. Also the medical director of the Diabetes and Obesity Center at the University Hospitals in Cleveland. Doctor, thanks so much for being with us. So do you and your colleagues sometimes feel like this is an uphill climb, losing battle, you can pick your term, but you've got better tools these days, but the cases are still going up and up and up. Yeah, it is. And thank you for reminding me. This is such an important topic. We are coming out of a pandemic and we are going into another one with type 2 diabetes. It has been uh, very um disappointing for all of us, despite that the technology, the new medications, the science improved in the last 15 years, maybe more than 40 new medications we have in our toolbox. And we are seeing uh, worsening diabetes control, more complications, and more and more people suffering from it. And the reasons are what? It is very complicated. It starts with our genetic background, what once was a survival gene for our ancestors are not as good uh, as genetic background right now with our new environment, the environment combined with our genes, the environment of uh, really sitting more than um, moving. And our diet that has changed tremendously in the last five, six decades are probably the main reasons we are seeing this rise. Yeah, and that was the report that has kind of been the launching point for for a lot of this, that that the medical tools are not enough. And that that was the quote. So this really does mean to to that last point that you had there, that this is more of like a, a societal issue, too. Absolutely. So. I will tell you in medicine, medications or medical interventions are never and should never be the first way of treating our issues when it comes to obesity and diabetes. We have to go to the root of the problem. We have to intervene as earliest as possible so that we prevent or put into remission before this happens full blown, and now we are treating all the complications. It is a societal issue. When I see a patient and I tell them, and I can tell them as many times I want to about healthy diet and exercise, if their environment is not amenable to it, if they cannot afford it, or if they afford it, they don't know how to do things, the knowledge gap is there. I am just alone on this battle, and we need help. We really do. All right. So if you were able to get the help that you need, what would that help be? I would say knowledge to make sure everyone are aware how to 
to prevent? Are they at risk? Do they have it? Even, uh, you know, half of the population who has free diabetes, they don't know they have it, the knowledge. The second thing is to implement the knowledge. Do they have the tools? Can they even cook with healthy foods that we provide if we can provide? We need um, fresh produce and healthy items to our patients in a affordable manner and close to where they live. They shouldn't be traveling 20 minutes, 30 minutes to buy the healthy food, which we have neighborhoods here in Cleveland that really don't have those options. So availability of the food, availability of the knowledge, availability of areas they can go out safely, walk, um, exercise, uh, find tools to move. Um, those are very important, and schools are very important right, but, to but, but, provide. But, I, but I'm interrupting because uh, while some of the things you list are, are things that individuals can clearly do or try to do for themselves, some of the other things you, you mentioned, certainly valid, but you're talking about bringing about huge societal changes and also changes that would have an enormous impact on people's uh, budgets, on the economy, and their job. I mean, it, it's such a vast area that, sure. realist, that realistically, I, I can almost see why a lot of people say, you know what, if I end up getting it, I'll just pop a pill. <laughs> it's easier, isn't it? It's easier. Yeah. But there are things we can do, right? We can actually teach um, urban farming even. Um, it's not that difficult to grow uh, some of the fresh produce. We could uh, teach children younger, when they are young, how to eat healthy. Even myself, I was in the illusion that everything that is sold in grocery store was healthy until three decades of my life. <laughs> until I started reading the labels, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Learned that that's not the case. Doctor, we got to run for time, but but thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, Dr. Beitu Hadipolu, a professor of medicine there, Case Western Reserve University uh, School of Medicine. Coming up. Yeah, I was going to Yeah, go ahead. You knew go I was going to say it, right? I know. Go ahead. Say it. Go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. Kale. No. No, I'm not eating kale. <laughs> I don't, the world could come to an end. I am not eating kale. Sorry. Well, few things are more annoying than mosquitoes. And as Mike knows, the two things I hate most in the world it's are... Mosquitoes and kale. Mosquitoes and kale. We'll find a third thing next week. No, no, I'm confining it to mosquitoes <laughs> and, and kale. Yeah, get rid uh, of both of those, I'm fine. The mosquitoes, not the kale, buzz around, bite you, and then you end up with a red bump that itches and itches. <laughs> That's what happens when you eat kale, though. So. <laughs> that, too. Yeah. yeah. Some mosquitoes are far more irritating, Irritating though. The uh, ankle biters, they've been out a lot in full force across Southern California, even though the activity should be slowing down because, you know, it's fall. Carrie Svoboda is the program lead for Ventura County's mosquito control efforts. Carrie, thanks for being with us. Uh, so you guys have had your work cut out for you this year, huh? Things have been busy, yeah. Why are we seeing so many of the mosquitoes, and I guess so late, into the year you know uh, the mosquitoes have had all spring and summer to uh, multiply and as is often the case in southern california we get this uh, warm weather towards the end and uh, high temperatures and humidity there's sort of a sweet spot where their activity and reproduction rates uh, development times all increase and people are seeking relief from the heat going outside getting exposed more etc 
You know, when I moved out west from the east years ago, uh, people out here used to tell me, oh, unlike the uh, east coast, we don't have really, you know, mosquitoes here in L.A. Was that ever true or was that always a myth? You know, um, it's true in some areas or was true. Um, it's it's kind of uh, patchy in Southern California. It's It's not the same as some of the places you visit and you just can't avoid them. But we do have our are areas that uh, produce quite a bit of mosquitoes. Um, and then these new ones are great at, at pretty much finding uh, every neighborhood. And, and uh, if they get their, their foot in the door, uh, they can become really a huge nuisance. Yeah, so we've got the ordinary guys, right, that have always been around. And those are the ones that can carry West Nile and they come out like the evening hours, right? And then we've got the new guys and those are the ankle biters and like, they don't care what kind of day it is, and they really want to eat you. That's a good description. Um, yeah, we have our a uh, couple of our native mosquitoes are capable of transmitting West Nile, and they're the uh, dusk till dawn biters. Um, and then uh, the invasive Aedes mosquitoes, uh, they have kind of a, a preferred temperature. They don't care whether it's light or dark. They're very active during the day and still active at night, but they... They will um, seek a little bit of shelter during the hottest part of the day. Um, but yeah, they they will ruin your day no matter what time it is. So how do we totally pulverize them? Um, if you, That's uh, our goal. We're still working on that solution. He wants to join up on, with like a, the tanker or the Air Force yeah, or whatever, something whatever and just spray okay, the whole it town. Yeah. Come on down. We got some equipment for you, but... The biggest um, weapon in our arsenal is informing the public, and um, everybody needs to be really vigilant about any and all standing water. These guys are capable of using much smaller uh, sources to to lay their eggs and, and go through their development cycles in. Um, you know, they like to bite your ankles, but they might be hatching out right under your nose, so your your saucers under potted plants and your um, yard drains could be holding just enough water to uh, let these guys hatch out. And getting rid of those sources is is how we can decrease the number of biting adults. Yeah, we always hear the the plant saucer thing, and and I wonder, do we have? Is there like a number for how many can actually come from from one of those? Because you know, oops, I forgot to toss out the water out of there. No big deal. Maybe a couple mosquitoes, or is it like like ten thousand mosquitoes can come from somebody's plant? Well, it's it's. Definitely in the hundreds, you know, it's all relative, but um, larvae, small little guys, I'm looking right now across the room at some hatching jars that have maybe a uh, four or five ounces of water in them, and there's dozens and dozens of larvae in there. Wait, wait you're ha- why are you hatching them? Well, we he's, collect samples. He's not going to let them out, Charles. <laughs> right, right. They're, they're under guard. No, no, throw them, um, throw them out. <laughs> Get rid of them. <laughs> well, we... we are always investigating new sources and getting into cryptic, you know, stormwater areas and uh, trying to find the solutions for various neighborhoods. And so uh, to make sure we know what we're dealing with, we'll bring them back and put them in special hatching jars that they're, they are secured and they're not going to get out. How, how good does that spray work? And is that at all bad for us? Well, our program and a lot of programs in Southern California focus on on larviciding, which is uh, using pesticide that that um, targets the immature stages, because the uh, the mosquito larvae they're contained and they're they're 
you know, immobile. Basically, they're, they're they're restricted to that water environment. So we can use a small amount of pesticide to take care of those larvae in situations where you can't just eliminate the source. You know, dump it out, fill it in, whatever. Um, it takes a relatively small amount of larvicide as opposed to a big amount of adulticide, and uh, it's it's more effective and and safer for um, the environment and the people and the workers to use larvicides. And we do use some very safe materials, uh, primarily BTI, which homeowners can also get. Um, BTI larvicide is commercially available, and it's it's really safe. It specifically targets mosquito larvae. All right. Gary Svoboda, program lead for Ventura County's mosquito control efforts. You got your swatter? You ready? No, but they're cultivating them in those, you know, in those. I bet you they're growing kale, too. Oh, my gosh. It's fine. Don't worry. It's not going to let them out. The kale? Yes, he won't. It won't get you. Don't worry. <laughs> That's in depth for this week.